we welcome you to the Truth Simply Put, our broadcast and teaching series at the Basilea Commission. You're about to receive God's unadulterated word, brought to you by Pastor Alexander Victor, challenging, uplifting, and provoking you to new dimensions in your kingdom walk. And now, today's message. I've come to the realization that um, the entirety of the errors, and let the elders hear me very carefully, the entirety of the errors of Christianity, in quote, are essentially hinged on the inability of today's believer to come into the fullness of what Christ did. And the inability of the believer who has heard to believe and be fully persuaded by it. So the things that we are struggling with are not things that have not been dealt with. They have. The question is, do you believe? And if you believe, are you persuaded? So a lot of the error, the reason why we are championing deliverance is because we do not see deliverance in what Christ did. Is anybody hearing me? The reason why we are championing pilgrimage to the Holy Land is because we do not see that Christ is the promised land. When God called Abraham in Genesis 12 to a land that he would show him, what is that land generally regarded as? Canaan, right? Canaan land is called the promised land or the land of promise, right? Genesis chapter 11. It was in Genesis 12 God called Abraham, right? Genesis 12. Let's go to Genesis 12. Let me just show you that very quickly. 12 verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abraham, get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. You shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and I will curse him who curses you. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And Abraham Abraham departed as the Lord had spoken to him and Lot went with him. So generally you know by reading the narrative of Abraham that his destination according to the calling of the Lord was Canaan, right? And then we go further on. In um, chapter thirteen. Um, the, the, the bedrock of chapter 13 is that Abraham's herdsmen and Lot's herdsmen began to fight for water for their flock, right? And then Abraham told them to go separate ways, right? And Lot saw the east side, you know, the plains of the Jordan, and he chose there, and he journeyed east. So verse 14, 
against that backdrop. Genesis 13, 14. And the Lord said to Abram after Lot had separated from him. Can somebody say after Lot had separated from him? And that's a whole other message. Lift up your eyes now. And look from the place where you are. Northward, southward, eastward, where Lot was. And westward. For all the land which you see, I give to you and your descendants forever. A few chapters later, Lot is in trouble. And God comes to the landlord of the east. To say, I'm about to destroy that place. But you saw it and so it's yours. So um, let's negotiate. You see in chapter 13, therefore, that Abraham's journey was not one of geographic location. It wasn't a place Abraham was journeying to. It was a person Abraham was journeying into. Do you understand? It wasn't Canaan. Because Canaan wasn't the promise. Genesis 11. You see it in a bit. I'm just, just laying a foundation. Genesis 11:27. This will interest somebody. And this is the genealogy of Terah. Terah begot Abraham. Abraham. That's Terah's, Abraham's father. Nahor and Haran. Haran begat Lot. And Haran died before his father Terah in his native land. Ur of the Chaldeans. Then Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai. And the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and the father of Ishkah. 30. But Sarai was barren. She had no child. And see 31. And Terah took his son Abram and grandson Lot, son of Haran, who was dead, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, his son Abraham's wife, and they went out with them from Ur of the Chaldeans. And they came to Haran, a place now, not the person, and dwelt there. So you see that Canaan was not some special, spectacular land that Abram discovered when God called him. Abram's ungodly father, Terah, knew Canaan and was already headed there. Terah was going to try to work his way into the promise. He knew there was better. He knew there was a Canaan. And he set out to go there. But he didn't get there. He gave up sooner than later and settled. Next chapter, God calls Abraham out of that. I know your father was going to Canaan. But walk with me and I'll bring you into the promise. So Canaan was not the promise. It was not so special because Terah, it wasn't unique to Abraham because Terah, his father, had longed to go to Canaan. So Canaan didn't come into the picture just because Abraham set out to go there. Do you understand what I'm saying? Terah, his father, longed to go to Canaan. 
He tried it by works and didn't get in. Abraham believed God. And it was counted unto him for righteousness. Because he thought he was going to a place until he realized it wasn't the place, it was the person that he needed to see and come into the promise. Do you understand? So we preach promised land. We preach special oil from Israel. We preach, that's what I was saying. We preach olives, you know, pomegranates, you know, from the promised land, from the holy land. And Pentecostals champion pilgrimage even more than Orthodox do because we do not understand the place of the promised land in the finished work of Christ because he is that city whose builder and founder is God. He is that father's house in which there are many mansions. So believers are trying to make heaven because they do not understand that when Jesus spoke of my father's house, he spoke of himself. He spoke of himself. Not a place. I've taught you in DSTP already, how can a house have mansions? It's supposed to be mansions that have houses. Not houses having mansions. Until you see where he says, destroy this temple and in three days I will build it. And he says, when he's speaking about that, he spoke concerning himself. He is the house of the father. So David, you know why David is the most messianic prophet? The prophet who, even unknown to him, prophesied a lot more about Jesus than even Isaiah did. And sometimes you're reading Psalms and you see a switch between what David is saying of himself and what he's saying of the Lord. So when David says stuff like, I was glad when they said to me. Let us go to the house of the Lord. And you and I would think that he meant the temple until you realize that there was no temple in David's day. That's just a simple tent with no partitions and the Ark of Covenant in between. So David is prophesying, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to he who is Christ, the son of the living God, who is the house of the Lord. So we miss a lot of things because we cannot trace them to what Christ did. And therefore, we create two dichotomies. We create Christ and finished work and the rest of Christianity. So you need Jesus, yes. You need the cross, yes. But the cross dealt with sin and stuff. You still need to. Are you understanding me? You still need to. But you need to. I understand, but. So when he spoiled principalities and powers, what does that really mean? Except that he actually spoiled principalities and powers. And there's nowhere you see that anybody came and repaired what he spoiled. Because he's the one that says, I open a door and no man can shut. So God spoiled principalities and powers and the devil came and fixed it. And then uses it to trouble a people of God. How? Say the cross is enough. 
So all we struggle with really is because we either do not see it in the finished work of Christ. And that's why I, when I say that there is no other message, people don't understand. They think that every time we preach Christ, we preach Christ died, was buried, was resurrected, you know, rose up on the third day. Ah, is that, how can we be preaching that every day? Everybody knows that now. But does everybody know? Does everybody know what that means to the believer? I was teaching in Grace Consulate and I told them that Christ crucified is not the end of the gospel. The place was quiet. Christ crucified is a system. It's not just a feel-good message. Jesus always pointed to beyond himself. I am the way. The way to where? I'm the door. The door to where? I'm the truth. The truth to what? So until we see the fullness of the finished work and appreciate everything in it, life will never quite come together. So we're struggling with what we're struggling with because we do not yet see that what we're struggling with is inclusive in the salvation package. Swap number seven. His acceptance for my rejection. Because Jesus endured my rejection, I now have his acceptance. Because Jesus endured my rejection, I now have his acceptance. Swapped it. What is rejection? Everybody here at one point or the other has suffered is suffering and if you don't believe tonight's message will suffer rejection and rejection is essentially the feeling of being unwanted or unloved right the feeling of being unwanted or unloved and a lot of times it hurts to feel rejected and because of the complex that rejection forms in us, a lot of times our hurt is not, just, is not necessarily because you were rejected, but because you felt rejected. You know there's a difference between being rejected and feeling rejected. There's a difference between being unloved and feeling unloved. Most times the feeling is informed by a, a complex, a paradigm, a state of mind as we grow. And I think I would submit that rejection is probably the worst sickness ever. Ever. That feeling of you gave yourself out and they just rubbished you. You poured yourself out and you were not appreciated you know and it can eat you up like a cancer and every time it almost invariably translates into a physical infirmity always translates to infirmity I mean I've said things before I say them all the time and I, sometimes I get into trouble for saying things like that but I will stick to it because let God be true 
Let every man be a liar. A believer, a son of God, cannot, should not be depressed. I don't care if it is a psychological illness. A child of God, a son of God, saved, sanctified, redeemed, blood-bought, cannot, should not suffer depression. Now you can justify it all you want. Maybe you have a pastor who is a... a, You know how it's difficult when you have a pastor who has a secular profession that influences his ministry? It's very difficult. It's very difficult. If you allow your personal vocation influence your ministry. Everything about your ministry will be influenced and determined by what you are trained to do. So you can have someone who is a counselor and says, I deal with people who have depression. I, I deal with them too. And if you're a believer, I'm not trying to cure your depression. I'm trying to cure your ignorance. It's not your depression that's the issue. It's your ignorance of who you are that has fueled depression. So clinical depression is established. But even that answers to the cross. For sons of God. Answers to the cross. It influences your overt behaviors, your covert behaviors, all that stuff in school. I did all that jargon. So we're not trying to cure your depression. We are trying to cure your ignorance of who you are that should not be able to allow for the manifestation of depression. In the same vein as real as rejection is, a child of God should not, a son of God should not, and therefore cannot suffer rejection. But pastor, you don't understand. These things are very real. What are the causes of rejection? Number one, major cause of rejection, relationship breakdown. Is that also uh, infidelity? That's very bad, right? You heard that your partner was cheating on you and you just feel absolutely deflated. I've said over and over with infidelity that, um, and I'm not going to rush this because I'm just talking with you guys. Is that okay? Yeah. A guy cheats on you, your husband or your wife, or, you know, if you have a girlfriend and cheating on you, you have a problem already. (laughs) (laughs) Fundamental problem. (laughs) But, you know, your, your husband or if your fiance, fiance, cheats on you um, and the first thing that comes to your mind when you're cheated on and I've been in both situations the cheater and the cheatee okay yeah. you know you can sit there and act all cute and holy yeah like you have never done anything wrong in your life everything is all smooth with you uh, I am not that kind of person do you understand? I'm very real with you. I have both been cheated on and I have cheated on. <laughs> Thank God my salvation is still intact. Mm. A hopeless case. 
an empty place if not for grace. That's my story. The first thing that comes to your mind when you have been cheated on is the feeling of inadequacy. Especially as a woman, you feel not good enough. You feel, what is it the other woman has that I don't have? And you start to compare notes. And by notes, I mean to say other things that I will not mention because of the likes of Yawan and, and Delight and Desmond. So replace notes with what the anatomical parts of the body. You begin to compare notes with everybody else. You begin to doubt yourself, it's not big enough, it's not wide enough, it's not tall enough, it's not firm enough, it's not fair enough, it's not dark enough. I, I was coming down the aircraft and I saw a lady who had bleached and I could see the, the current, the traffic of blood in her veins. Could see it, yeah, could see it, could see it, yeah, yeah, I could literally see the flow of traffic rush hour and I'm thinking but you know most times it's, it's fed by the feeling of I'm not good enough I'm not, I'm not fair I'm not dark you, you go for a modeling audition and they say they want people who are fair complexioned and that's it one man's opinion changes the course of your entire life and you begin to doubt yourself or you begin to alter yourself in order to live up to somebody's expectation and that lasts until you go for another audition that is looking for the exact opposite of what they rejected that you were trying to become and you realize now they want dark-skinned models. Now, I appreciate that you find it funny but you realize that if you're being honest with yourself you're using your humor to cover your pain. Nigerians are very good at laughing over pain. That's why comedians make money. We're very good at masking our pain with laughter. And it's good. So whenever I say stuff like this and people laugh, I know that it's hitting home. I'm serious. I know it's hitting home because Nigerians know how to just laugh their, their pain and their misery away. And then... Tables have turned. And then, you know, you want this, you, you want that, and, and you're messed up. And then you start to look for something or someone that can make you feel loved. And for ladies, when you feel rejected from a relationship breakdown or from infidelity, the rebound is always worse. You know what the rebound is? The one you go to because you want to feel a sense of worth. You want to feel a sense of value. You want to feel like somebody appreciated you. It's worse because there are men who know how to prey on the pain of a woman scorned. There's men who specialize in being everything you thought you wanted in a man that you didn't have. And so you open the doors of your heart. They're in, they eat, they're done. And they're gone. And you're left feeling worse than you felt in the first place. And you try a third time. Because hopefully there's someone out there 
for me. So rather than establishing your own sense of self-worth and value, you are pandering to the proclivities of absolute rascals because they have no regard for you. This is why when a lady meets a man that is a man indeed, they don't know. You don't know. Because you're so messed up by years of negative conditioning that when you meet someone who is actually paying attention to you for you, you get bothered. But they tell you what you want to hear. Oh, don't worry, you're lovely. You're fine. You're beautiful. And somebody meets you and tells you, well, honey, you know, you need to fix that body odor thing. You get offended. But somebody has to love you to see you beyond a one-off fling because he does not need to fix your body odor to sleep with you once or twice. It's the same thing with pastoral ministry. You've gone through so much pastoral abuse that when you find a pastor after God's heart, you don't know. You familiarize yourself with him. You treat him like dirt. You gave everything for the pastor you are afraid of that took advantage of you. And then you're free and you're in a place where you can hug and be free with someone. And the pastor cannot tell you something to do and you do it. Because of years of conditioning of abuse. That's why somebody who has been sexually abused gets desensitized to sex and it becomes purely physical because they lose the will to fight. They just put out what's there to guard. What's there to protect. It was stolen from me. It was taken from me. And I'm talking about real issues. So most often than not, we are shaped by Perceptions and opinions that we allow. We dealt about this in the distraction of opinion. Afferentes. And so we suffer rejection from relationships. A guy feels not good enough, not man enough to handle something. You get fired from your job, it traumatizes you. Because the first thing you do is look inwards and go, I wasn't good enough. I wasn't good enough. Something failed and you blame yourself. A deceased person dies in your hands, you blame yourself. I didn't do enough. I didn't pray enough. I didn't give enough. And then most times rejection happens. I said it was going to sound like motivational speech. Some of you had seen a different dimension of me. Sometimes it happens and you are so rejected that you begin to transfer that rejection to other people. Because most rejection that happens to us is a product of people's own self-esteem issues. In other words, a man is frustrated. He's angry. And then he looks at power that he does not have. And then exerts unnecessary aggression on whoever he perceives he has power over to make up for his own shortage of authority. Do you understand what I'm saying? 
And that's why I said to married couples, be careful when a man lifts his voice and say, I am the man of this house. He has lost it. Because a man who is the head of the house does not need to exert that he's head. Scripture says in the word of a king, there is power. Scripture is not against any of that, but headship in the family is unequivocally clear. A two-headed animal is a monster. Scripture is clear. Don't confuse yourself. 1 Corinthians 11 verse 1. It is important for me to write these things to you. Now concerning headship, I will have you know that the head of man is Christ. The head of woman is man. Not the head of every woman is man. Lest you male chauvinist, misogynist men start to feel like you are head of every woman. That is antichrist. God did not place man in charge of every woman. Especially in Africa, men talk down on women. You will say please to somebody who is contemporary to you because he's a guy. And then you are sending a lady, even if she's older than you, you say come and do this thing. Because you have been taught that women are trophies to be acquired. Women are assets. Sometimes liabilities in the African sense of it. Therefore, easily disposable. So it's not a problem when a man cheats serially on his woman. Oh, but it's a taboo for a woman to cheat on her man. A tire is quickly put on her, on her head and she can even be lynched and burnt. But for a man, it's okay. Especially from the southern parts of Nigeria. It's okay. It's not a problem. It's not a problem. It's not a problem. So we see women as degenerates. We see women as inferior. And so every man will talk down at a woman. Woman, would you? You have not so learned Christ. Is anybody listening to me? Because how you will know that you have the mind of Christ is when you treat the woman with the honor of knowing that she's an equal son. Peter makes it clear. He didn't say they were weaker vessels. He said treat them as though they were weaker vessels, but as joint heirs of the grace of God. So the access to the grace of God you have is no greater than the access that she has, even though the order is different. And all of this we are preaching the gospel. So the man transfers the aggression to the wife that he can beat. Because rejection begats rejection. If you go and trace the psychotic history of these guys, they've been twisted from somewhere. Either from a boss, from a pastor, from someone. And, so it, it, and these are the things that the church doesn't talk about. Societal pressure can make you feel rejected. Sometimes your father will look at you and say to you, look at, look at, look at, look at Cecilia's family. So we transfer that rejection. I wrote another one down. And this is something, again, that's very dear to my heart. Unwanted pregnancies. You get married, in quote, out of wedlock. All hell breaks loose. So she's pregnant. The world should stand still. God leaves the woman because she's pregnant. 
So you have an unwanted pregnancy. Single parent. Promiscuous. And you feel rejected. You come to church and they sit you at the back of the church. A pastor is preaching and you know it's you they are preaching about. And so rejection sets in. Physical appearances cause rejection. I'm not big enough. Too small. My breasts are too little. My breasts are too big. My waist, one waist is smaller than the other. My hips are not big enough. I'm very straight. Again, if you're laughing, you know it's you I'm talking about. <laughs> and you notice you're the only one that is laughing. I'm not laughing. Because I know my assignment. I'm the one that knows what I deal with. I'm the one that some of you have not looked yourself nude in the mirror in years. And you say you are a son of God. But you're not comfortable in your skin. If you had your way, you would be in somebody else's skin. You look at somebody else and you see them as the archetype of the kind of man you would love to be. The kind of woman you would love to be. And you feel rejected. And because you feel rejected, even when you have not been treated with rejection, you interpret the vibe to be rejection. Are you following me? Somebody hugs you in a particular way. Somebody talks to you. Somebody says, wow, your hair looks nice. It opens up your face. You now go back and say, you see, I've always known I had a big forehead. I know what I'm saying. I know what I'm saying. Some of you cannot step out of your house without makeup on. You can't. You can't. You can't be seen without makeup on. There's physical inadequacies. You're short, or so you think. You're tall, or so you think. Oh, these days guys prefer petite women. You don't like them big. So you're under pressure to preserve just an earthing vessel that is nothing but a mere container of who you really are. Because when God looks at you, he doesn't see fat or short. He doesn't see fair or dark. He doesn't see accent. He doesn't know any of that. He sees the image of God and the image of God is Christ. So I guess for today, I'll just finish laying the foundations of what causes rejection. And then we'll continue next week. So I have what? Less than 10 more minutes. Medical challenges. This is another one that is dear to my heart. You have a condition. You're a stutterer. You're, what do you call it? Because God does not have a problem with what we have a problem with. He doesn't. He doesn't have a problem with what we have a problem with. So the child is born, dada, oh, that child. Someone is born with a genetic, genetic skin disorder, you know, albinism. And you say that they are witches. Albinos are beat up, they are burnt. They ostracize albinos as though they chose to be born that way. And so you can recoil and feel like I am not enough. And rejection sets in. And so rejection transfers and transfers and transfers. You have a medical condition, you are freed. So you feel rejected. Personal history. Your abuse, your failings. How many times you wrote jambo? 
how many times you try to get into school, what society thinks of you. I'm the firstborn. You're of you. Why are you still single? You are of marriageable age. You're an eligible spinster. All your mates are married. You're talking school. You're talking business. You're talking marry. I want to carry my grandchild. Go and burn it now. No, I don't get it. So I told my parents, I said, what? what? I don't get it. For you to have a grandchild, woman, calm down. I have to have a child. For the child to then become your grandchild. Don't put me under pressure to give you a grandchild when I am not under pressure to have a child. That's manipulation. So it's not about me, it's about you wanting to do an omogwa. And then you come under pressure. And then you start, after a while, you start to be careful. Then they call meeting. Prayer points. Those of you who are single or of marriageable age, come forward. And then you, you know that it's not your issue. You don't go forward. Everyone's looking at you. (laughs) No, not you. Who who knows what I'm talking about? And if care is not taken, I've seen this before. You go in. Because <laughs> at that point, you feel you are helping the person's destiny. Like they have forgotten that they need to marry. You need to remind them to go outside. So like I was teasing Mika outside. They now call senior single sisters fellowship you now become the head <laughs> for five years you are the president no election is done they are not changing next week and I wish I didn't have to wait until next week but we'll see what the Lord leads us you see how every form of rejection you have experienced or that you are experiencing was experienced by Christ and he took it in your place. He cannot be called a high priest who is not touched with the feelings of our infirmities except that he went through every single one of them. You see that how when Christ was rejected, he was rejected with you in mind. I'll show you next week. Think about this. Jesus did not die because of the cross. It wasn't the cross that killed him. In fact, Jesus died much quicker than crucifixion is supposed to kill. You could stay on the cross for five days and not die. The, the, the faster it was that you would stay on the cross for, for all day or the next day and then because it is your weight or on your legs that causes you to heave up and breathe after a while they now come and break your legs Kurifagion, it's called in the, in the Greek they break your legs so that your legs can no longer hold the weight of your body so now you have to if you need to breathe you need to use your arms and pull your body up and then you will suffer asphyxiation 
And so when you pull your hands up to hold yourself, you choke on yourself and you die. They came and they broke the legs of those other two guys because it was preparation for Passover Sabbath. They could not be left on the cross. They broke these guy's legs, broke that guy's legs so they could die, came to Jesus. He was dead. It wasn't the cross that killed him. It wasn't the cross. He died too early. I will show you next week how in Mark, they now went to tell Pilate that he was dead. And Pilate was astonished. Pilate was shocked. Why did he die so quickly? Because what caused him to know that he was finished was in spite of the stripes he took for your sins, in spite of the being bruised for your infirmities, in spite of the thorn, crown of thorns on his flesh, in spite of the blood that was paid for your forgiveness, all of that was not quite complete until the Father rejected him. And the moment he stretched on them, he goes, Eloi, Eloi, Sabathani, my father, my father, why have you forsaken me? And that was the last thing that he had to do. As soon as he felt the rejection of the father, put up Isaiah 53 verse 3 as we close. He's despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. For now begins to tell you why he went through that. Surely he has born. So the moment he realized, I've paid for their sin, I've paid for their healing, I've paid for their forgiveness, I've paid for their redemption, I've, I've paid for their right standing with God, but there's one more thing left. I need to sort out their acceptance before God and before man. And in order for that to be complete, every rejection they had suffered of man and of God, God, you have to heap that on me now. And the moment God said, remember I told you he turned his back on him? So that he cannot turn away from me. And the moment he stretched on that cross and he realized that he had been forsaken in the manner of speaking of the Father, his job was done. And the next thing that came out was tetelized die. It is finished. His last breath was paying for your acceptance. So you cannot suffer rejection. Refuse it. Doesn't matter what you've gone through. I'm not done with it. We'll pick it up in our next word in life. So as you go, think about this. Identify everything in your life that has brought you rejection. Or that has made you feel rejected. You were passed over on a contract. You know what I mean? You told the lady to marry you. She refused to show your proposal or something or whatever. And realized that all of that was in the equation when he was on the cross. We'll explore the rejection of Jesus by man in his death, in his ministry, in his life of God. And how all of it paid the price for your acceptance. So now you are accepted according to Ephesians 1.6 in the beloved. Rise above rejection because you are accepted. And who is accepted cannot be rejected.
We're glad you came tonight. This concludes this message. Thank you for listening, and we hope it has been a blessing to you. For inquiries and further information, please send us an email to info at the or visit our social media platforms.